As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The Belt and Road Initiative is set to be the most influential economic development project in recent history. It will be an investment of trillions of dollars, connecting dozens of nations with roads, rail lines, shipping routes, and most importantly, trade deals. But for all of the impressive figures, there is an equally concerning list of problems, centered around the nation that looks to be the ringmaster of this whole project. China is a target of controversy at the best of times, and sometimes this is deserved. Sometimes it's not, but... When a nation like this turns around and starts setting up channels of direct influence over nations, making up 70% of the world's population, it rightfully raises a few eyebrows. Now, as much as possible, we are not here to wear tinfoil hats and postulate over radical conspiracy theories of world domination, as fun as that can be. But perhaps the best way to clear all of this up is to look at the economics of this whole economic development. Logic would dictate that if this whole project provides genuine economic benefit to its participants, then there may not be any ulterior motives besides just making the participants in the scheme wealthier. Which, you know what? Is more than fair. It's like my boy Fiddy said. Nobody would have any problems with the United States, for example, setting up infrastructure in neighbouring nations to strengthen economic development, but maybe that's just because they are better at PR rather than genuinely having a more altruistic development plan than a nation like China, with its Belt and Road Initiative. The same is also true on the other side, though. If it does turn out that this whole project is unlikely to deliver any tangible economic benefit, then one could reasonably assume that there is some other, more nefarious reason that China is spending trillions of dollars building this web of roads. So for the sake of drawing conclusions, we need to answer a few questions. What will the Belt and Road Initiative do? Will this provide an economic benefit to China? Will this provide an economic benefit to the other nations involved? And ultimately, is there a cheaper, less direct approach to achieve the same results? This is an Economics Explained video. If you enjoy these videos, please consider liking and subscribing. It really helps out. But with that out of the way, let's get started with truly understanding the Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative is a major infrastructure-based geopolitical and economic development that plans to directly link upwards of 100 nations together by building road and rail and water connections that span as far as Central Europe and link directly with major economic centres in China. A majority of this development is centred around establishing these physical trade route connections that otherwise did not exist and were not conducive to mass transportation on the scale that the nations plan to trade at. The construction of world-class highways, railroads and ports will be able to accommodate bigger trucks and trains and ships, meaning that the extended region that already had relatively strong ties will be able to move just that little bit closer, metaphorically at least. Free trade is great news to most global economists because it means that countries can focus on what it is that they do best to produce more wealth overall for the global economy. 
China's outstanding growth in recent decades has been centrally fueled by this same type of international trade. We have seen time and time again in our videos that by embracing their huge productive capacity, they have made themselves the workshop of the world. The Belt and Road Initiative furthers their ability to prosper off their ability to add value through intense industry. But sometimes, these sorts of things don't actually work out in reality. The idealistic notion of economic theories like comparative advantage often miss nuances that make the difference between economic success stories and nationwide disasters. China is by some estimates investing over $8 trillion into this scheme over the course of two decades or so. So, if this whole system really is a prudent investment, we better start seeing some pretty awesome returns for the country that's forking out for most of this shiny new infrastructure. A good majority of the nations that have been brought into the project are developing or underdeveloped nations. So it's not like China is building a backdoor into huge consumer markets to sell their own products to. Instead, it's actually the opposite. For the most part, China actually plans to be a net importer amongst the nations in the scheme, with a primary focus on fossil fuels. Today, China is the largest importer of fossil fuels, iron ore, aluminium, and a host of other materials that keep its massive industry chugging along. Getting access to these resources has actually been a major bottleneck to the nation's development, simply because there is only so much the nation can naturally ingest without massively destabilizing these commodity markets. Historically, the source for cheap natural resources has been nations like Australia, Canada, and Brazil, which are obviously home to a lot of natural resources, but more importantly, they are also home to decent infrastructure, which means that they are able to efficiently and cost-effectively load lots and lots of coal and steel and whatever else onto big ships to get them across to China. Now, especially in recent years, China has shown some interest in decoupling themselves from alliance of these imports, which is not to say that they would cut them off entirely, but they do want other options. A lot of the developing nations that fall into the Belt and Road Initiative have huge reserves of these natural resources, but are just not economically viable to do business with because they lack the critical mass of infrastructure to make these natural resource exports competitive next to more established resource nations. By channeling money into port infrastructure, railroads, pipelines, and all of that good stuff, China will be effectively giving these nations the economies of scale they need to export resources just as effectively as these other wealthier nations. If anything, they may be able to undercut the more developed nations because the cost of doing business in these countries is just naturally lower. So in fairness, this will be kind of bad for those resource-rich nations that currently control these markets, but at least for the nations involved in the Belt and Road Project, this kind of sounds like a win-win, right? Well, yeah. If this is how everything plays out, it will drag these nations up to realize their productive potential while simultaneously serving as a great source of natural resources for China. It may sound like China is taking advantage of these nations to just harvest them for their natural treasures. That's not really fair. Wealthy developed countries buy natural resources off poorer nations all the time, and normally it's a pretty beneficial arrangement for both parties. So long as it's not done through the uh, freedom treatment, it's normally a win-win. Even beyond expanding its natural resource pool, China has outlined very publicly some key economic objectives of the plan that cover everything from developing new markets for them to sell their goods to, 
building the skills base of scientific research and development in the region, and even objectives such as spreading the prevalence of traditional Chinese medicine. Okay, so not great if you are some kind of endangered animal, but otherwise, there is no real alarm bells ringing here. It looks as if the idea that there is some evil subplot involved in this scheme is probably not as likely as the nation simply pursuing the most honourable of pastimes, which is just making fat stacks. So, I guess we can tick that one off our list. Perhaps China profiting off all of this was never in the question though. What looks like it's a little bit more iffy is if the other participants will share in all of this winning. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, even if the conspiracy theorists predicting that the Belt and Road Project will reign in a new world order are correct, it's likely that China would profit off such a reality. Perhaps what is more important in dispelling these concerns is to look at the benefits to the other participants in this project. And there are a lot of them. Nations become involved in the project by signing the Memorandum of Understanding with China. To date, there are 138 signatories of this agreement. But the big distinction here is that signing the Memorandum of Understanding is the geopolitical equivalent of ticking that I would like to receive email updates about special offers in the future box on some dodgy website. It shows that this project has very, very wide appeal, but it doesn't mean that all of these nations are truly brought in at this point. To really explore if participating nations will win out, it's probably more reasonable to look exclusively at the nations at the centre of the Belt and Road. The nations that will be connected by this infrastructure range from very, very poor nations that probably need the leg up, places like Mali, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, and then it extends all the way to very, very wealthy nations like Singapore, Austria, and Italy that probably don't need too much of China's money to get themselves going. But those that are on the more desperate end of the spectrum of this whole deal can get a bit dicey. We explored debt trap diplomacy in our latest video on China where we looked at the way the nation may be able to use the unrest in the world today to basically foreclose on key pieces of infrastructure in undeveloped nations. Now, the Belt and Road Project is the primary vehicle that China is using to dish out these infrastructure loans. These loans are being given by Chinese state-owned banks that still do technically have a profit motive, so the actual dynamic of these engagements gets a little bit interesting. To play devil's advocate for a second, we should consider the benefits of these types of loans. Infrastructure is what makes rich countries rich. For most of you watching, you are fortunate enough to be in developed nations, and you should know that it's your roads and power grids and healthcare services 
the ports and planes and pipelines that mean your nation is able to produce more with less people, making those people wealthier on average. Oftentimes the hardest part of economic development is getting your foot in the door with decent infrastructure. By providing loans that nobody else would to nations that are desperately lacking these assets, it gives poor nations the opportunity to fully leverage their industrial potential and start a growth phase that has led to the kind of prosperity we have seen in nations like, well, China. And to further this point, you really have to consider the nations that might be falling into this debt trap. These are nations that are very, very unstable, very poor with a bad history of honoring past debt. They are the international equivalent of a subprime borrower. Normally institutions account for this risk by charging very, very high interest rates. But China hasn't done this because they know it would crush any kind of growth potential. In fact, a majority of these loans are at 1% interest or lower. So there needs to be something there to make it at least somewhat economically viable for these semi-profit driven banks. And what that thing is, is security. Home loans, for example, receive very, very low interest rates because if you stop paying, the bank can come in and take your house and cover their asset position by selling off that property. The same thing is true with these loans. They are incredibly generous, but the nations need to know that they still must be paid back or China is coming to foreclose on that port or rail line or whatever. Now, China claims that they are not practicing debt trap diplomacy, but of course they would, wouldn't they? In reality, no one can be too sure. Try to be objective about this and let me know what you think in the comment section below. Does China and the state-owned banks that finance these projects want borrowers to default on their debts? Same as last week, the most logical answer to this question gets featured in next week's video. Aside from that, the genuine benefit may just come from these nations getting that opportunity. Sure, if China does need to foreclose on some of these debts, it's going to make headlines and it's going to make a lot of people very angry. But these examples might be few and far between, meaning that the benefits of these poor nations outweigh the risks of taking on some of these debts, especially when you consider that by doing so, you'd get an inbuilt customer. If a regular nation was building a shipping port, it would run the risk of effectively not having anybody that wanted to use that port, meaning that it was going to be a pretty terrible investment. By signing up to the Belt and Road Initiative, you will know that you are going to be top of the list when it comes to filling Chinese tankers up with sweet, sweet natural resources, which is really a leg up that can't be ignored. So, as a whole, are these measures financially beneficial for the participant nations? Well, yes. Probably. They are risky and by no means guarantee success, but let's be completely honest here. China is a ruthless economic force. But if a nation can properly embrace this project, it's likely that they will receive genuine prosperity from it, even if this prosperity is under the thumb of a central authority like China. So I guess we can give our checklist a tick here too, even if it's a slightly smaller one. Which leads us on to the final piece of the puzzle. Is there a cheaper way to achieve the same result? Now, as far as profitable trade deals go, the trillions upon trillions of dollars that the Belt and Road Initiative is set to cost is on the more expensive side of things. An argument could be made that if China could achieve the same results by just setting up regular trade agreements, this would be a lot more financially beneficial for them Raising the question, why go out of your way to spend all of this money? Sure, 
there is lifting up nations to access cheaper resources, which does sound like a logical objective, but the slightest bit of scrutiny will show that the trillions of dollars they are investing into this initiative would buy a lot of coal, even if it is at slightly higher prices from slightly less friendly trading partners. The reality is, as always, a nice blend of both extremes of the argument. Will China make money off this deal? Yes. Will other participants become wealthier off this deal? Most likely, yes. So, there is a good old-fashioned profit motive here, that perhaps this is all secondary to the influence it will give the nation. The United States has been the default economy of the world for a very, very long time. People almost universally recognise things like US dollars as a currency just as useful, if not more useful, than their own home currency. And this whole arrangement has had some significant economic benefits for the nation. It means that the USA can run massive deficits with no real issue, it means that they can extend corporate influence easily, and it means that other nations are happy to do business with it because it gives them access to those sweet, sweet US dollars. If China can successfully roll out the Belt and Road Initiative, it will sit at the centre of the largest economic network in the world, which might mean that the status of the world's de facto economy will shift away from the United States the same way it shifted away from the United Kingdom last century. The nation may claim that they are happy to be number two, but of course they would say that. The Belt and Road Initiative will potentially be the most influential economic development of this century, in line with the Industrial Revolution of the 1800s and central banking in the 1900s. Any type of plan on this scale involving this much money and this many powerful people is bound to attract some level of criticism. If you add in the fact that a nation like China sits at the centre of all of this, then tinfoil hats get turned up to 11. But in reality, it looks like this is purely a profit-driven agenda. Sure, they are going to extend their influence across a cobweb of nations, but that's all in an attempt to generate massive wealth for their own nation. They are not necessarily guilty of any kind of evil subplot here. They're just guilty of very directly wanting to be the de facto economic power in the region. Which, you know what? Will rustle some feathers. There are certainly nations that I would prefer to be wielding that kind of power instead, the United States included, but it's not like they are trying to hide it, and it doesn't look like we can stop them. Hi guys, thanks for watching my latest video. As for the homework I gave you in the last week's video, I think this comment was best. I don't necessarily agree with all of this personally, but it was definitely a fair and balanced argument, which I think is what's most important here. Otherwise, if you did enjoy, please consider liking and subscribing, and if you really enjoyed, please consider supporting the channel on Patreon like these lovely people did. Our Q&A sessions have been mixed up a bit. We are now interviewing with people that work directly amongst the subject matters addressed in these videos. The first of these videos is live on our second channel, and you can expect the one on the Belt and Road Initiative to go up tomorrow.